Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, I guess you all are the ones that uh, managed to figure out how to set your video recorder to record the debate tonight. And the ones who aren't here are the ones who couldn't figure it out, so they're home watching the debate. I'm sure it will be somewhere on the Internet to watch again and again and again for who knows how long. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you'll have the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together this evening as a body of believers to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to be strengthened and encouraged as we study the eternal truths that you have revealed to us in your word. And we pray that as we study these things that we would be uh, challenged in our own spiritual life to recognize that you are the God that the Bible says you are and that it is important to walk consistently with you by means of the Holy Spirit, walking in the light, abiding in Christ, and applying your word consistently. We pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things that we study this evening, and as we study these things in terms of history, that you would further strengthen our understanding of how you are working in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began a study of the Ark of the Covenant, which is at the very center of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was actually a temporary uh, dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant because it is on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, that you have the dwelling place of God, the Shekinah. Now, one form of that word, Shekinah, most of you can't read the Hebrew, but that Hebrew word reading from right to left is Mishkan. The Shekan, the second, third, and fourth letter form, the Hebrew letters S-H-K-N, which is the noun form of the verb Shekan, meaning to dwell, which is where we get another noun, Shekinah, 
meaning the dwelling of God. The term Shekinah, which we often use today in reference to the uh, glory of God, doesn't refer specifically to the glory of God, but the dwelling presence of God. And that form of the word was not coined until the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament by the uh, rabbis to refer to that dwelling presence of God over the Ark of the Covenant. At, during the day, there was a cloud, and dur- at night, there was a pillar of fire, and only the high priest would go into the uh, inner, inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, which was behind the veil. And he only entered once a year, which would be on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which happens to fall next Wednesday, so this is a timely uh, Bible class to look at Yom Kippur and its significance and uh, in preparation for next uh, next Wednesday. So we are in the midst of these high holy days in the Jewish calendar this last Monday night at sunset, uh, Rosh Hashanah again, which is their uh, new year that's on the civil calendar, and then uh, it ends next Next Wednesday evening, uh, the Yom, uh, Yom Kippur begins. And so the, that one day, once a year, the high priest would go into the uh, Holy of Holies, and there he would sprinkle the blood uh, on the Ark of the Covenant as a picture of God's future redemption of the nation. And so we began our study this last time in just a few things by way of review. We looked at the terminology related to the ark, that it's called several different things in the Old Testament, the, usually related to what is being emphasized. It's called the ark of the testimony because it contained the law. It's called the ark of the covenant of the law of the Lord, again, emphasizing the Mosaic covenant. It's called the ark of God, the ark of God, the God of Israel, the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. It's called the Holy Ark and the Ark of Thy Strength. It's called the Ark of God 34 times and the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh 31 times, which shows the emphasis. It was a place where God would dwell in Exodus 30, uh, Exodus 25:22. He told Moses, There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, which we'll begin to study tonight, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the sons, for the sons of Israel. And I pointed out last time that the ark was a, the meaning, basic meaning of the word is that it is a box or a chest. The word also describes a coffin. It's different from the Hebrew word used for the ark that is a floating vessel such as the, um, Ark of Noah, or the basket of uh, papyrus reed that Moses was placed on when his mother uh, put him out on the on the uh, Nile River. The uh, Ark of the Covenant itself is a box that is made of acacia wood covered in gold, and then the lid is pure gold, and the lid, as depicted in this picture. Is, uh, has the two cherubs on top, the cherubim, the im is the Hebrew plural, which is the, called the mercy seat, and that is the focal point for the ritual uh, in uh, the Jewish calendar.
We're told in Hebrews 9.3, which happens to be the focal point of our study, and all of this is background to Hebrews 9, that behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, and that means a dwelling place. That, that Greek word even for tabernacle is uh, skene, meaning a dwelling place. So there's a dwelling place which is called the Holy of Holies, has a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, and there it's reaffirmed that inside the Ark, as it was initially, there were three things. There was the manna, there was the Aaron's rod that budded. This was an almond uh, stick. This was his staff, his, uh, which indicated his position of authority as the high priest and the tablets of the covenant. And as we studied these last time, I pointed out that each of these is not only symbolic of God's provision. Ultimately, they, it typifies God's provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. The manna depicts him as the uh, bread of life. Again, he is the one who provides spiritual nourishment, just as the uh, written word provides spiritual nourishment. So does the living word, both compared Matthew 4.4, 4, the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Aaron's rod indicates God provi- God's provision of a priest. And there was the rebellion involving uh, Dathan and uh, Byram and uh, the rebellion against Moses and Aaron accusing uh, uh, accusing uh, Moses of nepotism, that he's just uh, putting his own brother in as high priest, and they wanted to uh, do it their own way, and God uh, devised this little test where he put the, the staff of the different men who wanted to be high priest into the ark overnight, and overnight Aaron's rod uh, miraculously sprouted branches and leaves and uh, uh, bloomed and produced almonds, indicating that God is the one who produces life where there is death, and also indicating that Aaron was his choice to be the high priest, and then the uh, tablets, the stone tablets for the Ten Commandments represented God's law, which, of course, the Israelites had broken during the time when Moses was initially getting them up on Mount Sinai. They became impatient. They convinced Aaron to, to make a golden calf, and then they worshipped the golden calf, and so they were violating the law even before they received it. But God in his grace provides a solution. It is Jesus Christ who is the spiritual food. He says he is the bread of life, John 6. He's the spiritual food, the spiritual rock, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Jesus Christ is the high priest, the genuine high priest who is the Lord's high priest. That's what we studied in Hebrews chapter 7. And he is the one who fulfills the tablets of the law. So all of these elements are rich with meaning and significance. And by placing them inside the Ark of the Covenant, they represent the failures of Israel to uh, accept the grace provision of God. And this is why when the uh, mercy seat is placed over the Ark, then this is where there needs to be cleansing because of the sin in the life of the nation. And so uh, last time we continued to look at all of these different, uh, these three different 
things that were within the ark to come to understand them. And so tonight, what I want to focus on is how the ark is used in terms of teaching, the teaching of doctrine in the scripture. The mercy seat is described by the Hebrew word uh, kaparet. Kaparet comes from the root kafar, K-P-R. Those are the consonants. Remember, Hebrew was not originally written with vowels. And so the root, what you, what you have is the nouns, the adjectives, the participles are all built off of a three-letter root. And that three-letter root is is uh, kafar. Now, in uh, <clears throat> past times, it was often thought that the primary meaning of kafar was to cover, because the word is used in Genesis chapter 6 to talk about, to describe uh, Noah's action of covering the uh, ark, the ship that he was building, with pitch in order to waterproof it. And so that verb kafar is used there, but uh Recent scholarship in the last hundred years has recognized that this is really a, you, what you have is a homonym. You have two different words that are spelled the same way. So if you look this up in any Hebrew dictionary, they'll have kafar one and kafar two. And kafar one is an older antiquated word that was used in Genesis and kafar too is the word that relates to uh, atonement. And so uh, what you were probably taught, as I was taught for many years, is the main idea of atonement is the covering for sin, but that's a misunderstanding of the word. The primary meaning of the word has to do with, uh, is related to cleansing. In fact, in uh, over half the passages in the Mosaic law where you have this verb translated when it's tra- was translated by the rabbis into into Greek in the Septuagint they translated it with the uh, Greek verb katharizo which means to cleanse or to purify related to the purification of sin it is interesting that there is and I'm not sure what the significance of this is but it is interesting that is there is no comparable word to atonement in the New Testament in the post-cross epistles. And some have suggested that perhaps that is due to the fact that kafar has its primary focus on a ceremonial cleansing. Once you have the completed work of Christ on the cross, then you don't use that vocabulary anymore. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I don't think we have enough uh, evidence to suggest that, but I think it's interesting because theologically, in the history of theology, the work of Christ on the cross is often referred to as atonement, but you don't find that word in the New Testament. You only find that in the Old Testament in the uh, rituals related to the Day of Atonement and the Ark of the Covenant. So, the, in the New Testament, you have the use of the word uh, hilasterion. I didn't spell that up here. It's H-I-L-A-S, 
H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, which is the Greek that is translated for propitiation uh, in the older King James Bible, which is written for people who understand and know English and have more than a third grade education. But, of course, in modern translations, which are all written for those who are products of government schooling and don't know how to read beyond a third grade level, they have to dumb down the vocabulary. So you look at these new translations, and they don't use these time-honored words that are so great like redemption and propitiation and expiation because and reconciliation because they're just too long for pe- people to understand who just have a third or fourth grade reading level. So you notice that there there is a constant dumbing down of, um, of, of translations because we just don't produce people who are educated enough, which really flies in the face of the whole history of Christianity back during the Puritan era in the 1650s in Massachusetts, the town with the lowest uh, uh, reading level, but 98% of people in Massachusetts could read because they understood that you had to learn how to read so you could understand God's word. And so that was um, Christianity has always influenced people to be educated, contrary to uh, how some anti-Christian, those who are hostile to Christians uh, look at Christianity today. Key verse for understanding this in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. You might want to turn with me there. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. We'll take a little time just to think about the significance of this particular verse. There's a couple of other passages that are uh, related to this in understanding uh, propitiation, for example, in our passage in Hebrews as well, in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, but we're going to limit our focus here on this one key passage in uh, Romans chapter 3. The section actually begins back in verse 21, so let me begin reading there to get the context. Verse 21 reads, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now what Paul has been doing in, and what Paul does in Romans is to explain how God's righteousness is vindicated in history. And this goes back to his uh, opening uh, sentences back in uh, verse, Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that's what Romans is about, is the revelation of God's righteousness in history. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Quoting from uh, Habakkuk. So in, when we come to Revelation, I mean Romans chapter 3, 
he's continuing to talk about this revelation of God's righteousness. Notice he said, in it, in 117, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed. And in the previous chapters, he has shown, in the previous part of um, Romans 2 and the first part of Romans 3, he's shown how the, the law in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, was one way in which the righteousness of God uh, was revealed and established. And he will argue in other places that the law is not a means whereby man can achieve God's righteousness, and the law shows that man cannot achieve the righteousness of God. But he says in verse 21, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The revelation of God's righteousness is going to be through uh, Jesus Christ. And he again uses the phrase, the righteousness of God, in verse 22. He says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Now, what he is talking about there is a, the righteousness of God that comes to those who believe through faith in Christ. Now, this is a doctrine that it should be very clear to all of you. It is the doctrine of imputation of righteousness, that man cannot... Uh, fulfill the, all the mandates of the Mosaic law. It's impossible. The purpose of the law was not to sh- give away from people to be saved, but to show that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that none could measure up to God's righteousness. No human being can uh, produce the kind of righteousness that God's perfect righteousness demands. And so the only way to have that kind of righteousness is to have it given to them. And so it is witnessed, I mean, that is Jesus Christ, and the, this issue of righteousness is issued in the law, the Torah, and the prophets, which is a term for the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God, which, uh, if you look at the way it's translated, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe. So the righteousness of God comes through faith, not because of faith. It's very important to understand that, that you, do, you are not declared righteous because you believe. There's a difference in the uh, Hebrew, excuse me, in the Greek, you have the phrase, the preposition dia, and if it uses an accusative case noun, then it has the meaning of cause. If it has a, uh, if it has a genitive, then it has the idea of, of intermediate means. And so we are ultimately saved because of God's grace and because of the work of Christ, but it becomes ours through faith, so that when we put our faith in Christ, faith is non-meritorious. It is the object of faith that has merit, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we believe in Christ, it has no merit. God does not uh, choose us or elect us because we believe, but we believe, and it is through that faith then that God then imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. And then in verse 23, Paul comes along and says, for he, well, at the end of 22, that last phrase should really be with 23. He says, for there is no difference. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what Paul has just done in Romans uh, 2 and the first part of Romans 3 is to show that Gentiles are all sinners. Jews are all sinners. Jews have violated the revealed law. Gentiles have violated their conscience. And the fact that they have a conscience, even if the conscience doesn't have the right norms and standards in it, it still provides a standard. And by violating that standard, they, sh- they reveal that they are guilty. So both Gentiles are guilty, Jews are guilty, and now he is concluding this section. He says, for all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike, and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 20, 24, he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is one of those great passages of a doctrine that we could truly spend weeks on, so I'm just hitting the high points. And uh, he, what he is saying is that... Um, that we are justified freely without condition by his grace. So God's grace is the ultimate determiner of the plan of salvation. Salvation is not done on merit, human merit, but it's a free gift. This is the same thing Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, uh, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're justified, again, through redemption. So we have the word, we have these, the doctrine of imputation earlier. Now we have justification and redemption. Redemption means to purchase something. It means to pay a price. And whenever you buy something, you are redeeming it. And it is, was a word that was often used, and it was used in the marketplace. One of the words used for redemption was the uh, Greek word agorazo. Uh, the noun is agora, which is the word for marketplace. We have that brought over into an English word, agrophobic or agoraphobia, which is a uh, condition where people are afraid to go out in public, to go into the marketplace. And um, so agora means to go to the marketplace and purchase something. Ex agora, or ex agorazo, means to purchase something out of the marketplace. And then another set of words that you have that are also translated redemption are the words lutrao and apolutrao. And these words, the prefix apo intensifies it, also has that idea of paying a purchase price. So when you look at the word redemption, it refers to the objective work of Christ on the cross where he paid a price, he paid a penalty, he died in our place. It is a substitutionary death so that his death is... In instead of ours, so that he actually pays the price for our sin, and we do not 
uh, pay that price ourselves. So that sin isn't the issue for the Christian. The issue is faith in Christ. Now, that's something that's a problem for a lot of folks. And they, they think that, well, when you die, if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, then the reason you go to hell is to pay for your sins. Well, sins are already paid for. The reason you go to the lake of fire is because you have rejected God's provision of righteousness, not because you have sinned. The sin penalty has already been paid for on the cross. It's just that, like if uh, you were to go out to dinner with someone and they were to, uh, you, you, they were to pay the uh, bill, pick up the tab for you, and let's say you got up and you had to excuse yourself, go to the restaurant. When you came back, you found that they had already paid the bill. And you say, no, 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 I don't want you to pay the bill. I want to pay the bill. Well, it's already paid. You can't go and pay it. It's done. Uh, you, you may reject it, but it's already paid for. So it, the whole concept of redemption and payment breaks down if it's only a provisional payment in the event that you accept it. It's already paid for, but... As I've found in the past, three things have to happen in order for a person to be able to go to heaven. First of all, the sin penalty itself has to be paid for. The sin penalty has to be paid for. That sin penalty is, is spiritual death. When uh, God created Adam and put him in the garden, he placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and he said, don't eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Not 930 years later when you die physically, but the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So there was something that happened at that instant, which theologians call spiritual death. This is the same kind of death Paul refers to in Ephesians 2.1, when he says you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, you're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, being dead in your trespasses and sins isn't being dead for your trespasses and sins. See, you haven't committed any yet. You're just being born. You are born spiritually dead because of the, the sin of Adam, which is, uh, has brought spiritual death into the human race. Now, the reason I brought that point up is that there's a couple of places in the Bible where it talks about people dying in their sins. And so there are some who have suggested, actually a number of people, have suggested, well, see, if you don't trust Christ as your Savior and you die in your sins, then that means that you have, um, you, now you have to pay for your sins. Well, dying in your sins doesn't mean that at all. It, dying in your sins doesn't mean dying for your sins. It just means that you're dying in a state of spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1, you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. So if you die in your sins, that is comparable to dying where you are still, still spiritually dead. Okay, what happened with Adam was he disobeyed God. At that instant, he died spiritually. So that is the penalty for sin. Christ pays that penalty on the cross, so that's not an issue for anybody anymore. The problem is that experientially... We are all still spiritually dead. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. So we don't have, we don't have real life, spiritual life. We're spiritually dead. Second problem that we have is that we don't have righteousness. 
And we can't be in God's presence without perfect righteousness. So when we trust Christ as our Savior, at that instant that we believe in Christ, a number of things happen, but the two most important things that happen are, number one, you are a person is born again. They move from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Another thing that happens simultaneously, probably precedes it logically, but... Um, I didn't state it in that order, so it, but imputation would precede it logically. Imputation of righteousness and the declaration of justification by faith. So that solves the other two problems. The cross objectively solves the per- first problem by paying the penalty for sin for everybody. But the other two problems are not solved unless somebody puts their faith alone in Christ alone. And so the instant you do that, you receive the imputation of righteousness to solve that problem, and you are regenerated to solve that problem, and now you can, you will go to heaven and spend eternity with uh, the Lord in heaven. Those who don't have that can't, and so they are condemned to the lake of fires, John uh, 3.18 says, because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Belief would have solved that problem. Failure to believe means they're still spiritually dead and they lack righteousness. So, Paul says we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption. Justification is personal application based on the objective payment of the price on the cross. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, here's our verse, verse 25, whom, that is Jesus Christ, God set forth as a hilasterion, a mercy seat. So Jesus Christ is set forth as a mercy seat. He is that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. He is the one who is uh, satisfying the justice and the righteousness of God. So God displays him publicly as a mercy seat or propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his, as God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, how did this mercy seat work? To understand that, we have to go back into the Old Testament. Back into the Old Testament. Now, when we look at these uh, depictions, of, and here's one on the on uh, the screen there. Let me see. I've got a better one earlier. When we look at the depiction of the ark here, and this is a picture of the mercy seat, we have the two cherubs that are looking down, you can't see their faces, but they were to be looking down into the center here, the center area of the of the lid of the ark. And this is where the blood would go. The blood is there as to appease, that's another synonym for uh, propitiation, to appease or to pay the price. Uh, Propitiation means to conciliate, to appease, Maybe some problems with that in English, but that's the English definition of the word. The righteousness of God, it's to satisfy 
God's righteous demands. So cherubs are always associated in Scripture with the righteousness, the justice, that is the holiness of God. And so God's righteousness is violated by human sin. His justice, therefore, must condemn sin. But when the blood is applied, then God's character, his righteousness and his justice is satisfied that the payment is sufficient. And that's what is depicted in the mercy seat and on the Day of Atonement. So turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16. Now this comes contextually, or in time, there's some other material that has preceded this, but Nadab and Abihu were, we studied earlier, they're two of Aaron's sons, and they thought they could go into the tabernacle, into the holy place, carrying incense that was uh, fired, by, not by the fire from the uh, brazen altar, but it's referred to as strange fire, wasn't authorized. So they think they can come up with their own way to come into God's presence. And they were instantly uh, executed by fire from the Lord, according to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2. Now, when we come to Leviticus 16.1, we read, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. So this chapter comes chronologically after chapter 10. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered a profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, that is, into the holy of holies inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. It's obvious that God means what he says because he has just incinerated uh, two of Aaron's sons, that you can only come into God's presence on God's terms. You know, man can't say, well, I think that God's this way and I can approach him the way that I think is best. God determines how we can approach him and uh, he has the right to do that, just as any of us have the right to determine who will come into our house and under what conditions. And it amazes me how so many people in their arrogance want to say, well, I can come to God, just he'll let me in just because I'm sincere. I don't care how sincere you are. If I don't know you, I'm not going to let you in my house. I don't know why God has to be a, a bigger fool than I am. So, But that's how most people want to treat God out of their arrogance. So God makes it very clear that there is a set procedure for coming into his presence in the Holy of Holies, and any other way of doing it is going to result in death. And the only time the high priest can come into God's presence is going to be once a year. And that is the ritual is described beginning in verse 3. Then Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. Now, this is one of those passages that if you're not careful, 
you can become very confused because you have here a sin offering, a young bull sin offering, a ram as a burnt offering, and then if you skip down to verse 5, it says, He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats. Well, wait a minute, did we read a goat up there? No, we read a young bull and a ram. Now we've got two kids of the goats as a sin offering. The sin offering earlier was a young bull, so there's a young bull sin offering. There's a ram burnt offering. There's a two kid, uh, two, two goat kid sin offering and another ram burnt offering. So there's a, at this point we've got four offerings that Aaron is going to uh, bring before the Lord. This is a tremendous amount of work. I want you to get the sense of that, bringing the animal in, uh, properly taking care of the animal, trussing the animal, slaughtering the animal, uh, butchering the animal, draining the blood from the animal, all according to the set ritual. And then, and you have to do this on four different sacrifices. And so this is going to take a good bit of time in order to accomplish this. In the meantime, Aaron is told exactly how he is to dress when he does this. He can't just wear any garment. Verse 4 describes, uh, describes the garment. He's to wear the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body as described uh, in Exodus. And we'll come back in a couple of weeks and we'll look at the dress the uniform of the high priest and what that signified in, um, in his ministry. He'll put on the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. And on the turban is written the Hebrew Kadash le Yahweh, which means holy to the Lord, signifying that he is, has been set apart to the service of the Lord, which happened at his uh, inauguration and his ordination as the high priest. And he follows a ritual washing, a complete washing of his body in water, which takes place before he puts the garments on, and then at the end of the day it will take place again when he takes the garments off before he gets back into his uh, street clothes, as it were. So we note that he is to be properly attired. God dictates the attire that we should have. This is a picture of the fact that we can only come into God's presence when we are clothed with uh, the righteousness of God. He will first offer the ram as a burnt offering. This is for himself. He then offers the... um, he offers the uh, ram as a burnt offering, and then he will offer the bull as a sin offering for himself. This is described in verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. Now, ceremonially, he's already saved. So the idea here of making atonement for himself is not focusing on that idea of dealing ultimate with the overall sin penalty, which we normally think of with the word atonement. He is making purification, 
cleansing for himself and for his uh, household. So first he offers the ram as a burnt offering to God, and this is the first offering described in Leviticus 1 where the animal is consumed in fire. Then he offers the bull as a sin offering for himself, and the blood of the bull is then taken into the mercy seat and sprinkled with his finger on the east side of the mercy seat, that is, in front of the mercy seat, seven times. So he'll take his finger and he'll splatter it seven times in front of the mercy seat, according to verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, make atonement for himself for his house, and he shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a uh, censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord with his hands, and it goes on and describes uh, this process. Uh, down to verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he'll sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So he goes and takes the coals in for the incense and then goes into the Holy of Holies. Then he will come out again. He comes out and he takes the two kids of the goats. Uh, and one is the offering. The other is going to be the scapegoat. So this is a picture of the fact, it's going to picture two things. It's going to picture the sacrifice for sin, which is the kid that dies, and then he will uh, put his hand on the other kid. He will uh, identify his sins, and by putting his hand on the kid, there's a transference of those sins ceremonially to the kid, and then this kid is taken out into the wilderness to show the complete removal of guilt, is that God completely removes the guilt of the sin from us so that it is not brought back, and the scapegoat is then taken out into uh, into the wilderness. So he will slaughter the uh, the one goat as a sin offering, which is for the people. The earlier sin offering was for his house. This is for the people. And he will then bring the blood from that goat into the mercy seat and sprinkle it before uh, sprinkle it before the uh, goat the, before the mercy seat, which is described again in verse verse fifteen. Uh, then he will go out and he will make purification of the altar with some of the blood from the bull sacrifice, the burnt offering, and some from the goat as well, by putting it on the horns of the altar. This is described in verses 18 and 19. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So there is the cleansing of the altar. Then at this point, he takes the live goat, confesses it, and releases it into the wilderness. And this brings, uh, that's described in verse 21, and that will bring the... Um, 
uh, ritual to a close. Verse 22 says, in referring to the scapegoat, the goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. God completely removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, and now he is going to take off his linen garments. He's going to leave them there. And verse 24, he washes his body with water in a holy place, takes a complete bath, puts on his regular garment, and then he comes out and he offers his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people again and makes atonement for himself and for the people. And then the fat of the sin offering he burns on the altar. So it is a lengthy process showing how much has to be done in order to cleanse from sin. And that's one of the things I think that is often forgotten by folks who think that somehow you can lose your salvation is they haven't dealt honestly enough with all that had to be done in order to become saved in the first place. There is What this depicts is... The ex- all of the th- things that have to be done in order to provide real cleansing. If this is just ceremonial cleansing, think how much more has to be done for real cleansing. And so all of this would take place on the Day of Atonement. Now, we'll get into this in a minute when we go through the history of the ark. But after the first temple was destroyed in 586, and I believe the ark was hidden, that's my view. Others think it was taken by, taken to Babylon. Others think it was spirited away by Jeremiah down to Egypt. There are some different views, and we'll look at those because that's an interesting thing to, to look at, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. But um, I believe it was hidden by the Levites, and when uh, they, the Israelites, the Jews, came back from the captivity, and they rebuilt the temple and dedicated it in uh, 516 B.C., there was no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. So what did they do? Well, it was, they still had the foundation stone. The foundation stone is the rock that is referred to when you refer to the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque up on the Temple Mount. And I've never had the opportunity to go in there because since the Intifada of 2000, uh, non-Muslims can't go into the Dome of the Rock, but I've seen pictures, and there is the rock, the bare rock that is there, and this is the foundation stone that it was in the Holy of Holies uh, in the temple. And so what the uh, high priest would do in the second temple period was that he would just go in and he would splatter the blood on the foundation stone. Now, there is a view that is held by, some, uh, by many rabbis, I think has fairly good documentation behind it, and that is that the, and we'll, get, we'll look at this in a minute, or maybe not this time, maybe we won't get to it till next time, but that, um, that the ark was actually hidden in a room that is beneath the foundation stone. And there's some evidence for that we'll get, we'll get into probably in the next lesson, but the reason they would still splatter the blood on the foundation stone is because of its close proximity to the ark. And there's the view that that's where the ark is still hidden. And there were a couple of rabbis, I'll tell you the story next time, who were who discovered 
a, an ancient entryway, the entryway into the second temple, what was called the Warren's Gate, and they went in, dug under the temple back in the early 80s, and they believe they got within, they, they, they're both dead now, they died uh, within the last 10 years, but they both died believing that they had come within uh, less than 50 feet of this hiding place uh, for the Ark of the Covenant. There's some documentation on that we'll get into uh, next time. But that's what they did until the destruction of the Second Temple. Now, on the Day of Atonement, there is to be a sacrifice in the way rabbinical theology sort of reinvented itself, reinvented uh, the Old Testament into Judaism. Judaism formally doesn't start until after the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. What is known today as Judaism is the result of rabbinical theology as it became solidified in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. It is not what was primarily taught. Some of it was, but it is, was not solidified at the time of Christ, uh, even though some of, some of the Pharisees and Sadducee theology was there. It, it doesn't become uh, institutionalized until uh, in the 90s at the council, beginning at the Council of Jomnia, about 90, I think it's around 95 uh, A.D. So uh, in Judaism, they believe that the sacrifices that the Jewish people make uh, make up for the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement until the Messiah returns and builds the next temple, which they refer to as the third temple. However, we would understand the third temple to be the apostate tribulation temple that the Antichrist will uh, desecrate in the middle of the tribulation and that the temple that the Messiah builds is going to be the fourth temple which is built during the millennial kingdom. So what we've done here is just to go through the, uh, the, the ritual from the Old Testament related to the Day of Atonement. It is a picture of the fact that God's righteousness and justice has to be satisfied in relation to sin, so that the mercy seat then is the picture of the satisfaction of God's character that this, that sin is completely paid for. Thus, when Paul writes in Romans 3.25, he says that, Get back to the verse here. That Christ is the one whom God displayed publicly as a mercy seat in his blood. So he then becomes the equivalent. The mercy seat is a picture. It's the place where God's character was satisfied. And so Jesus Christ is the one who satisfies God's, um, God's righteous and just demands on the cross because Jesus Christ is without sin. He is sinless, and therefore he is qualified to go to the cross as our substitute and pay the penalty for our sins. And his death then is uh, satisfies the righteous demands of God, and so his justice, therefore, uh, can be uh, satisfied by that sacrifice. This demonstrates God's righteousness 
on the cross, that his, his righteous judgment has to be uh, satisfied. So he passes over the sins previously committed, that is, prior to the cross, because in God's plan he knows that Christ will pay the penalty for all sins, and so though he doesn't deal with those sins until later, uh, putting that off until Christ comes. Now, next time what I want to do in the next lessons go through the history of the uh, history of the ark, taking it through the Old Testament, going through the uh, Exodus, going through the conquest, period of the judges, going through uh, Samuel up to its permanent residence in the Holy of Holies in the Solomonic Temple. And then the question is, what happened to it after that? What happened to the ark? Why don't we have it today? Is, where is it? Is there any idea where it is? Uh, is anybody going to find it? And we'll look at all of that next time. Okay, let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to understand the picture that is portrayed for us here at the Ark of the Covenant related to the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross where your justice is satisfied by his substitutionary payment for our sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things that we studied, that we can come to a greater understanding and appreciation for all that you have done for us in saving us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.